Welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. And we're back after a three-week break, and I want to apologize to our listeners for the unannounced break. Things got kind of crazy for me with uh, Red for Ed teacher movement stuff, Uh, but we're back. We'll be talking education politics today. Um, And before we get started, I also want to give a shout out to another podcast that I was on uh, a couple weeks ago. It's it's called Otters Talking Politics. Otters spelled like the sea creature. And they're a libertarian-minded podcast. And it's a guy that I networked with uh, when I was first started this podcast. His name is John Otter. He's a University of Arizona alum uh, who's now living in California. But he had me on the podcast and uh, had a great interview about Red for Ed. Um, very, very good questions and, and things that I'd never thought about had came up in that podcast episode, uh, including issues about uh, what the future of education might look like in the, in the digital age and whether whether uh, the money that we spent is is actually getting its value. So that that got up in that podcast. That's Otter's Talking Politics uh, podcast. <clears throat> and I uh, want to talk about a few issues today uh, about, about the Red for Ed. It's uh, uh, over for now. Um, but let's first talk, Dad, about winners and losers. And I was um, – so quick recap. The Red for Ed teacher movement momentum uh, was building for a few weeks uh, – on April 12th, uh, Ducey, uh, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey made a proposal, um, called it a 20, 20% raise by 2020. Uh, it was a, uh, the details were hashed out uh, throughout the next few weeks. Um, after his proposal, a strike vote was, a so-called strike vote was taken the following week, and the next week, uh, the strike started. And... Um, Last week it ended, and the legislature passed uh, a variation of, of Doug Ducey's 2020-20 proposal. You've written about it, um, and we can get into that a little bit. But you, in terms of winners and losers, you wrote that you wrote a column that said "Red for Ed one, Ducey zero. and I was a little bit surprised because um, even though that there was momentum and it was a, it was a victory for some of the things that Redford had wanted, I thought maybe Ducey had, had kind of captured that victory as being uh, taking the issue that he was very vulnerable on education and kind of owning it and putting his stamp on it and, and getting the sense that he ended the strike. So can you explain um, why you felt that the score is Redford one, Doug Ducey zero, rather than one one or Ducey won, Red for Ed zero. In terms of how the politics ultimately play out, um, what you described was certainly the intent of uh, the governor and his administration. And it may turn out to be a successful uh, gamut. Uh, I was referring more substantively. Uh, As a result of the teachers movement and you have to credit Red Fred uh, for its breadth uh, and its magnitude. Uh, the legislature approved 270 million dollars or so in um, additional appropriations to K-12 education 
that otherwise would not have um, taken place uh, with a commitment for hundreds of millions of dollars more over the next three to five years. Ducey has always been in favor of backpack funding, school choice. Which means uh, that, the, that the, um, the money for schools depends on the students going to the schools, back, and when you say backpack right. money. Right, so, so, so you put the same amount of money behind every student. So the way schools get funded um, is based upon the students that they can attract. Now that model requires that money at the district or charter level uh, be used at the discretion of the local officials there um, because um, that's the only way in which they can compete if they control the resources. If the state is dictating how the resources are done, you don't get the benefits of a competitive marketplace in education. This And, and Ducey has also been in favor of pay-for-performance. Um, he had a much ballyhooed uh, proposal just last legislative session in which schools would get additional money based upon student achievement. Um, so uh, this earmarked funding undermines the benefits of the backpack funding that he's always said that he's in favor of. Or the would-be earmarked funding? That he originally proposed, or are you right. talking about what ended up no, no. coming the, out? No, the, the, the legislature rejected that and did something that was far more responsible and sensible, even though it still runs some physical risks. But from, from, Ducey's, from Ducey's proposal, uh, he was arguing for a 20% across the board uh, pay increase for every teacher in the state, irrespective of performance, mm -hmm. uh, and denying local district officials control over a very large pot of money. So, so on a policy standpoint, he basically just completely conceded to what Red Fred was asking for. But wouldn't that just be a, a, a recognition or admission that teachers are 20% underpaid already across the board? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that kind of be just conceding that part of the argument that people but, have been making? But, but what it does is that it, it, robs local school districts of the ability to tailor additional compensation based upon their specific uh, recruitment and retention needs. Right. So all the money would have gone to existing teachers. That would have left no money available to change the pay scale for new hires. Right. And it's kind of clear when you look at what's happening in the schools around Arizona that the serious problem is that um, the entry level in early years uh, in the system. And given the vacancy we have, districts need to have money that they can use to improve the pay scale for new hires, mm -hmm. uh, which Ducey provided zero funding for in his initial proposal. Mm -hmm. Now, as we discussed, the legislature didn't do that. Instead, the legislature spent the same amount of money, so took what Ducey proposed in the first year of his three-year plan, and simply gave it uh, to the schools in additional um, state aid uh, with a statement of intent, that it was the intent of the governor and the legislature that this be used for teacher compensation. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to, but more important to me, even if districts honor that intent, 
they have the freedom to use the money the way that it will best fill their recruitment and retention needs uh, and not do it across the board and only for existing teachers with no money, no better pay for new hires. So your, so your final evaluation of Ducey's loss there would be in terms of the substance of, of the principles, right. it, it not may, necessarily the politics. Yeah, it, it may. I mean, he, he is going to run exactly as you described, uh, and uh, it, it may be successful. Yeah. In terms and, of, now, I, I think he does have a problem because he is still, he is fundamentally misrepresenting what the legislature did. He is saying the legislature passed my plan for a 20% across the board pay increase for teachers. It didn't. And, and teachers aren't going to get the first year increment of a 10% salary increase across the board. But it was, I mean, the additional money that, that went in would not have happened without Ducey making that proposal. Oh, no. oh, oh so absolutely. No, no question about so it. So in terms of, in terms of who gets credit for the additional money going in, I think it's fair to, for Ducey to say, Hey, this is, this was my idea. I, I'm the one that turned around and changed my mind and now they have this money coming in. Well, I, I would give credit to Red for Ed, uh, because without Red for Ed, Ducey would never have had that epiphany and change his budget so, proposal that right. radically. So let's talk about that because, uh, in terms of still talking about winners and losers here of Red for Ed and and this budget, um, I think one thing that that the 2020 plan did and did for me was expose the movement's partisan, you know, uh, not partisan base, but what the partisan nature of what was driving the movement or or the leadership that was driving the movement. Because the immediate response from the announcement was not good enough. Doesn't meet all of our demands. Um, where is this money coming from? Rather than a notion of like, whoa, we just changed the governor's position totally. Good job, everyone. Like, let's make sure this actually happens. And like, let's make sure we maybe have some way to pay for it. Instead of let's see, let's go on strike anyways. And that just, and that turned into, um, <laughs> the strike against the budget ended up turning into, we're not going to go back in the classroom until this budget passes. And it was more or less the same budget. I mean, when they, when they first announced the, I call it a so-called vote, when they first announced the so-called vote for, to, you know, to, to walk out, um, we didn't know the details. No one knew the details of the vote. So you can't say that, you know, to me, to me, the, what the announcement did, um, was expose the partisanship, uh, behind this. And I don't, I don't see any way you can, <laughs> you can, you can not see that, especially with the, with the invest in ed act, uh, and, and the way they've certain leaders have co have, have immediately started to back that. So for me, in terms of like the long term political implications, I see Doug Ducey and, and the Republicans as big winners there um, and taking a, taking away um, by exposing that for the, for the public going into, into November. I don't pretend to understand how the politics are all going to settle out. Um, Ducey uh, did uh, jeopardize support among his base. Uh, the Republican base expects Republican leaders to act tough in the face of a public employee strike. Uh, 
Uh, Ducey never strongly denounced the strike, just expressed a kind of weak need hope that everybody would go back to work. Uh, and he basically conceded to the demands. Um, so while in the persuadable mi middle, uh, it may have the effect that you described to the extent Ducey is counting on strong support in the Republican base, uh, I think he heard his case there. I mean, I, I never thought I would say that in the face of a teacher strike uh, that uh, Superintendent of Public Instruction Diane Ducey, I Diane. mean Diane Douglas, uh, would show more backbone uh, than Governor Doug Ducey. So um, the, the Paul, it was an extraordinary moment, and I frankly don't think we'll know till November how the politics will settle. But I agree with you um, that the way in which the movement responded to Ducey's initiative, however much I might be critical of it, um, did expose its partisan nature. And one of the other potential losers uh, is the bipartisan support uh, that was developing into an inaction plan to do something sustainable yeah. long-term uh, for K-12 through funding. Yeah, uh, and we had, we had talked uh, a few times about what was, what was Ducey's biggest vulnerability, uh, and I think you had said a few times that his, really his only chance of losing was if someone mounted a full-out education mandate campaign and took him down on that. So my, my first impression when he made that 2020 plan was he just won re-election, is that, you know, you just took away by, by I don't know, maybe he'll lose more more base than, you know, is, is there. But I was I was thinking, like, how do you, you know, you just took away the biggest knock on his plan, unless unless the Democrats can reframe this as, as a bad deal, like they're going to try to, well, there's like the problem. Or yeah, something. there's certain re, there's certain bases to say that it involves physical risk in terms of the multiple year multiple year uh, funding. Um, and <laughs> I had said that the way that you beat Ducey is to have a specific funding plan for K twelve education that involved a tax increase that you're willing to own. It may very well be that invest. Uh, in, in, in education initiative um, ruins the chances of the Democrats to do that because now you, you have this huge, almost doubling of the top marginal tax rate that would give Arizona one of the highest tax rates in the entire country. And what appears to be the leading Democratic contender, David Garcia, has endorsed it. Has he has it. endorsed And just it. a quick interjection for people that might not know what the Invest in Ed Act is. Uh, in the aftermath of the strike, or like towards the end of the strike, uh, an economically progressive group uh, announced a ballot initiative um, for an, a tax increase. It's called the Invest in Ed Act, and uh, it doubles the income tax uh, for people that make over $250,000, is that it, right? It, it increases it 
um, nearly doubles it for people who make over $250,000. It basically doubles it for people who make over $500,000. And they need to get that uh, 150,000 signatures uh, approved by early July. And then if it passes, it would go on the uh, on the ballot for all Arizona voters in, in November. And, and, and rather than having an open slate to, to craft um, a K through 12 funding plan uh, on his own, uh, basically this has forced, forced Garcia uh, into supporting this particular idea. And my guess is it's going to be hugely unpopular. So it may be that Ducey didn't win re-election by what he did, but it may be that the movement <laughs> by putting this on the ballot or even going forward with this idea may very well have re-elected him. And I've got another winner that I thought came out of this, which is Steve Farley uh, in, on, uh, on the Democrat side. He's running for governor. He's a current senator um, in the Arizona legislature. Um, and he was pretty on, I mean, everyone knew who David Garcia was, uh, other Democratic candidate, because he was endorsed by the uh, Arizona Education Association. Um, and he had been... He'd been at everything, <laughs> Every, everywhere, everywhere he goes, he shows up and's taking pictures and um, and talking to people. People didn't really know who Steve Farley was, I don't think, but they saw him in action. Everyone was paying attention in the last week of the budget. Everyone saw him in action. He was sending messages to people that I thought were very, very good, very uh, personable messages uh, to to people. And then after after the, and, he, and he voted on the budget, he voted in favor of. Um, the budget when a lot of other Democrats didn't, so he he's not going to be able to be attacked as saying I didn't vote for a, this this raise uh, for teachers, um, and people and teachers know who he is now, so they didn't they didn't before they saw him in action, uh, kind of see, seeing him champion their cause and then making a decision that went against the kind of crowd of of Democrats. So I I didn't I don't, I've not seen any poll numbers with him versus David Garcia, um, but just the impression I have is that. He, he went from being a relative unknown with, with a lot of teachers in terms of running for governor, and now he is, you know, kind of recognized as a, a supporter and, and an option. Farley is um, a serious person and um, does do responsible things uh, that aren't necessarily entirely politically motivated. Um, he... Uh, ended up supporting Proposition 123, uh, although he opposed it in the legislature. He said it was better for the voters to pass it than not. That was hugely influential in Pima County. It was an important part of a very narrow success. Prop 123 got a lot of additional funding to the K-12 education as a ballot measure. The extension of Proposition 301, the six-tenths of a of a um, cent sales tax that is mostly goes uh, to K-12 education uh, was passed by the legislature by a two-thirds vote. Farley deserves a lot of the credit for that happening, uh, not because of what he did, but because of what he didn't do. He's in the legislature. He's running for governor. He wants to run on the education issue. You have this issue that's going to get a lot of public attention. The political thing to do would have been to use it as a forum to offer amendments on your own plan, to say that it's not enough. He didn't. 
Uh, he he uh, supported it and and didn't play political games with it. And if he had even threatened to, it mm-hmm. probably would have prevented it from occurring. And then you have this, where he has his own position on on what we should do in K through 12 education, but he recognizes that this is a benefit, and he's one of just a handful of Democrats in the legislature who votes for it. He also, to my knowledge, has not endorsed the uh, Invest in Education Act. Oh. Um, what he has said is that he wants to see the sales tax base broaden. Now, I've been critical of him because he hasn't said what things that are not taxed that he thinks should be taxed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he still has the running room against Ducey that Garcia has basically forfeited by endorsing this particular proposal. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we'll see how how this play out. Very volatile uh, political environment right now. Um, Let's... uh, Let's talk about the Invest in Ed Act and the and the and, the, and some of the arguments been made about uh, or against the sales tax, because um, even though I don't I don't get the sense that people are totally stoked on this tax the rich only plan, I do feel like they're winning the argument that a sales tax is uh, regressive that it uh, that it disproportionately falls on. Um, People who make, you know, low-income workers that they end up paying a higher proportion of their money to the sales tax. Uh, what's your sense of that argument playing out? Because um, a simple thing to do, and you've written this, is you know, is to increase the sales tax base. But how? I mean, how do you? It seems like the main argument against that is like, hey, that hurts the poor. Well, the sales tax in Arizona has gone from. Five percent in 1980 to over nine percent now in many valley cities because it is the thing that's easiest to pass if you want to raise taxes and that's always been the case i have no reason to believe that it's not still the case i think the extent to which it is regressive and disproportionately affects the the poor has been overstated um, once you exempt food and medicine, which is exempt from the state sales tax, and you factor in uh, that probably 15 to 20 percent of the tax is not paid by Arizona residents. It's paid by winter visitors or tourists. I don't think the incidence of the sales tax falls as heavily on the poor as is commonly depicted. I happen to be in favor of broadening the sales tax base, and when you broaden the sales tax base beyond uh, just the final sale at retail of a good. So by broadening it, to you include mean services. tax more things, sales tax, tax on more things that don't currently have a sales tax. Right. So, so rather than limiting it to the final sale of a retail good, you know, maybe you include services, maybe you include other things. When you do that, you also reduce the, the uh, regressivity. Um so uh, I, I'm not insensitive to the argument, but to me, the most important thing is to restore K-12 funding to its pre-recession levels. And I think an increase in the existing sales tax is the way to do that with the least political resistance. Mm. 
Um, and it seems like the way to the Invest in Ed Act as it's currently written is going to be met with a lot of resistance. Uh, and it seems to me that it's a, <laughs> it's a great way to unite a fractured Republican Party to get out to the polls and vote against it. I don't know what... Oh, I, you could not design <laughs> what a I'm, proposal that, that would generate more well-funded opposition. Uh, and I, I think it, it is, will be a rallying cry. And not only may it doom Garcia, the Democrats have a lot of hope of taking over at least the state Senate. Yeah. Um, it's, if this is on the ballot, its candidates are going to have to take a position on it. And that could change a, a um, favorable to Democratic tide into a favorable to Republican tide. Yeah, and that's, and that's my big beef about it, is that I think if it was, if this was truly a, an organic grassroots effort in which everyone could sort of participate in the decision-making and, and the strategy and, and the ballot initiatives, I think if, I think if educators or, or uh, teacher site liaisons, whatever you want to call them, I think if they were kind of brought to the table and started from scratch and say, you know, let's craft something or write something that's going to make sense, it wouldn't have been this. So um, even though they're kind of asking for teachers and, and other educators to get out there and, and gather signatures and, and try to convince people to get behind it, we were never included in the discussion on on writing it or our input in it. And we wouldn't have crafted it that way if we were. This is clearly an attempt to exploit the education funding issue to usher in a, a radical left view of what tax policy should be. Um, and it, <laughs> and it, uh, it risks all the things that we've been fighting for uh, from the, from the beginning. And, and people, a lot of people have been for lots of years. Um, and, and I think we were close to a coalition coming together uh, that would involve broad segments of the business community um, to go to the ballot in 2020 with some kind of significant increase in the consumption tax and to put K-12 funding back to pre-recession levels yeah. and on a sustainable basis. This may um, upset that. I, yeah. From what I've gotten from the people who would be involved in such a movement, uh, it hasn't at this point turned them off, uh, but it's still early. Yeah, yeah. Last quick thing on, uh, on, the, on the subject. Um, just this week, there's been discussions on how districts are going to spend the money that they get from this plan. Tucson, Tucson Unified School District said that they were not going to uh, give it directly to teachers, all of it, that they were going to uh, spread it around through everyone that's involved in in kind of this expanded definition of what an educator is, including janitors and uh, nurse and staff and, and secretaries and stuff like that. Other districts have said, we're going to give this directly to teachers. How do you see that playing out? Um, are, if, if teachers don't get it, are they going to be blaming their districts or are they going to blame Ducey? Or how do you see those those arguments playing out this next few months? Uh, I suspect both. I mean, Ducey can be properly criticized for misrepresenting uh, what the legislature did, even after it did it. Um, so um, I, I think that he uh, properly can be criticized 
um, when it becomes clear that districts have a degree of freedom that he's implying that they do not. On the other hand, the decisions have been given to the districts and the charter school operators, and um, they should be held accountable, and I think will be held accountable for what they do with it. They, they can't turn and say, well, Ducey made us do it because there is no mandate from the state. I'm hopeful that districts and charter school operators will be more thoughtful uh, then simply let's give it all to teachers or let's spread it to everybody. There is a serious recruitment and retention problem among teachers. This money should be used strategically to fix that to the maximum extent possible. Uh, and I'm hoping that the districts will take advantage of the leeway that they've been given to do that. Last question, who you got in the NBA <laughs> or semifinals and finals? The Warriors, Rockets in the West, Celtics, Cavs in the East. Well, I, as you know, I have not – I've kind of given up uh, professional <laughs> basketball from, from what I have, the little bit that I have uh, watched and, uh, and what I've read. Uh, I think it's hard to stop LeBron – in the East. He is just playing at an additional level, even beyond the levels that he's reached previously. And he has a strong supporting cast. I think the the um, bad marks against his supporting cast are, are exaggerated. I'm really excited to see Brad Stevens coach this team against, it's almost like the ultimate, uh, you know, underdog, but united team with a great coach against kind of an overmatched superstar I'm really excited to watch that. Who you got coming out of the West? I don't know how you bet against um, the Warriors. Um, And I think uh, the tendency of the Rockets to let the air out of the ball in the half-court offense uh, won't work as well as it does against other teams with the depth of the defense that the Warriors have. Um, I... I actually wish that uh, Mike D'Antoni, who's the former Phoenix Suns coach, now coach of the Rockets, and who I think helped make professional basketball more enjoyable uh, with the offensive changes that he has um, innovated with, uh, would do better. But uh, I just see the the Warriors is too many weapons and – too deep of a defense yeah. to let the ball out of let the air out of the ball in your half court set. Yeah, the way, the way the Rockets chronically do, and they're battle tested and they're crunch uh, clutch performers as well. Well, are you um, projecting a Boston victory over over Cleveland? I will be rooting hard for a Boston victory. <laughs> I don't want to jinx anything. Um, but we'll see how that plays out. Thank you very much for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Um, And we will uh, be planning on getting back to our consistent schedule uh, recording once a week. Thank you.